Hello everybody, hope you're doing well today and I hope you had the beginning of a good week so far and I hope it's continuing for you. I hope you've been in the Word, I hope you've been speaking to God and more importantly listening to God as I need to, it's my life breath. And when I do, He speaks to me. It's a practice and it's a discipline but it's something you love and you learn to depend on. This message is called Broken and fragile and low and small. At the heart of sin and man's depravity and his subsequent and absolute and dire need for salvation is pride in one form or another and to one degree or another. We don't have a proper relationship to Creator God and as a result we don't have the proper perspective of ourselves within that relational framework either. We can, if we are honest with ourselves or willing to do enough soul searching and allow Jesus to show us what our motivations for doing things are, we can always trace our sinful actions back to pride. One simple yet profound and clear statement in the Bible is in James 4.6. You may have heard this. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And another equally strong yet simple reality, not someone's opinion, is stated in Proverbs 16.18. And it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, it makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Actually, that's not my opinion either. That's Romans 12.3 is calling our attention to that. It actually says it makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's pride. It's very good at masquerading as something else. It's very good at having small, subtle degrees. It's very good at deceiving and hiding and making excuses, all sorts of things. But it also puffs up, it, 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 all sorts of things. It can always be, you know when you're in math and you learn about fractions and you learn about the, common den the, the least common denominator, you always have to go back to what can't be shrunk down anymore or simplified anymore, or of any lesser value. That's what pride is. It can always shrink back down, be traced back down to pride as a source of many bad and evil things. All of them, actually. In order to begin to see ourselves in the true and the proper perspective, we can't evaluate ourselves. One, because our standard is far inferior to the Lord's, obviously. Two, because within it, with our sinful nature still intact, that taints everything we do and see and think and understand, and so it's impossible to gain a clear view of where we are. We'll always see ourselves as better than we actually are. No one likes to admit that they're small or wrong or weak or needing help or vulnerable or things like that, but it's true. Um, 
one of my things I used to do before I was really saved, but probably on the way to it, my favorite thing was not denying my sin as much as it was saying my sin is not as bad as his, or my sin is not as bad as hers. So I didn't really, I wanted to acknowledge my sin, kind of, you know, but I didn't really want to because I wanted to compare my sin with other people's and not really take the full brunt of the blame or the confession that I was supposed to in order to be saved, and that's pride too. See, we need to look at the truth of God's word to see what the standard actually is, how we actually measure up against that standard, which is perfect and holy and righteous and just, by the way, and then to humble ourselves in the light of that shortfall. Then we can begin, not fully begin, to see the actual relation or lack of it. So let's look at some of these verses, because I, we need to look at enough of them throughout the whole Bible, but not a ton of them, to give you a view of a proper spectrum or of, of all the ways you should see it from God's word, from his truth, from his point of view, and get the right perspective. Genesis, there's, well, tell you what, there's so many of them, I'm really not even going to give you the chapter and verse and all that. Well, I'll, I, okay. Genesis 2, 7 and 3, 19 show us that our, our humble and dependent beginnings as humankind says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. We came from dust. From the ground. Then it says, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, at our core, <laughs> at our very beginnings of all humankind, and I don't say this lightly, we are dirt. We're formed from dirt. You can't be prideful. <laughs> it's hard to be prideful when you realize you were born from dirt. James 4.14 says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Psalm 103, 15 and 16 say, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and then it knows its place no more. Psalm 8, 4 brightly asks this question. It says, What is man that you are even mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And when you get the right perspective of God, you see how huge and big and holy and righteous and just and loving and merciful and kind and forgiving and everything he is. You look at us and you think, why do you even look at us that way? And he does love us and he wants to raise us up. But in order to see ourselves in that light, we need to humble ourselves and realize we are nothing. 1 Peter 1.24 says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. So our beauty doesn't last forever. Our strength doesn't last forever. We, our, be our physical beings, don't last forever. Hard to be prideful over these things. Job 14.1 says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. 
1 Samuel 2.23 says, But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Psalm 38.10 My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. Talking about old age and and weakness of capacity. Psalm 49.12 But man in his pomp will not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. So all these people that are prime ministers and kings and whatever they are, business owners, millionaires, billionaires, I should say, that see themselves as, look at me, I'm great. Okay? He says, even those men will not last. They're just going to die, just like the beasts of the field do. Psalm 78, 39. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Another one says, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Another one says, as when one plows and breaks open the earth, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol, which is the depths of the earth. Another one in Isaiah says, stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? In other words, what is he? As in compared to God, but he, what does he think so much of himself? You know, he doesn't need to be esteemed. He's lowly. Even when he thinks he's high, he's not. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, regardless of how we'd like to view ourselves, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, our sins, are like the wind. They take us away. New Testament. In Him, we live and move and have our being. Okay, that is saying in God and because of God only do we live. Because of Him only do we move. Because of Him only do we have our being, our existence. We can't say how great we are. We, we didn't bring ourselves into the earth and we're going to leave this earth one day. And so no matter what you accomplish in it, no matter how great you think you are, no matter what you think you can ascribe or contribute or give yourself glory for, it's nothing. You are not much and it's all because of God. Psalm 39, 4 and 5 says, O Lord, make me know my end the end of my days, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Job 14, 1-5 says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and then withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do not open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment 
with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? There is not one. His days are predetermined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed him limits that he cannot pass. Job 38.4 Job says to mankind, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. That'll put it into perspective for you. Another one from Isaiah. It is he, meaning the Lord God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Psalm 90. I'm not going to pick one or two verses. I'm going to read it. Let me preface this by saying that the world is so enamored with what they call love. To them it means to accept and to tolerate and embrace evil in all its ways and its forms because they and their father the devil Jesus says hate the light true love God's love hates and doesn't tolerate the darkness which leads men into everlasting torment and fire and anguish it saves and, res and re re rescues them from sin it doesn't celebrate take pride in or glory in sin. So when the world says love, 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 it doesn't mean to accept everything and tolerate and embrace things that God sees as wrong. God's love, God is true love. He hates and he doesn't tolerate the darkness because it leads men into everlasting torment and fire and anguish and that's not what you were created for. God's love, not man's love, saves and rescues man from sin. Now, if you sit there and you tolerate and you affirm and you tell everybody it's great, it might be difficult, you might lose friends over it and everything, and they may not take it the right way. They might be probably quite offended, actually. But it's just truth. Truth isn't positive or negative in that regard. It's, If anything, it's positive. But it's how people perceive it. Now, if they respond to it well... They see how small they are. They realize that, even though they may not like to think of it that way, but they know it. God humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. So you can't, if you really love somebody, you're not going to continue to let them walk in sin and celebrate their sin and everything else. Like I heard about another guy this week that's a friend of mine, and I was just fairly very distraught over something that he did but anyway it's just I told him you, I, I, I want to be happy for you in this thing that happened that you just told me I knew nothing about it and I'm not being mean but man I can't and God doesn't want us to celebrate sin how much better easier for me would it be on our relationship and on you and on everybody's feelings and everything if I just said oh, wow that's a great thing wonderful for you dude but God said, no, I can't celebrate that. That's sin. And he didn't like it. And he did lash out in his own way and everything. And that's probably going to be the end of our relationship, which is mostly a working relationship anyway. But he's supposed to be a brother in the Lord, and I don't want to have that going on. But I can't say great for you, dude, when something's obviously wrong, and it's pretty darn wrong. 
my love for him calls him out, so to speak, in righteousness. And he's supposed to be a believer, so he definitely should not respond badly to that. You know, but um, hopefully God will, God will help him see it. And if he hopefully he'll surrender to that and realize that it's that was me saying that it was God and it's right. It's the right way to see things. But Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, return, children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades away and withers. For you are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities, our sins before you, our secret sins even, in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end because of our sin, like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your works be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I am reminded of Daniel in his interpretation of the dream the Lord gave King Nebuchadnezzar. One year after the dream, the Bible says, talking about King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, which was the grandest city and country and nation on the face of the earth by far. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, where he dwelt. And the king said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power and as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. When the words were yet still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom, your kingdom, has departed from you. And you shall be driven out from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, 
And here's the reason. Until you know that the Most High, not you, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. Now remember, I told you before, these are real people, real lives, real situations, historical, account, historical accounts, not fiction, not cute little kids' Sunday school lessons or anything. These are real people. These really happened. So this king over all the earth, with the most power, the most influence, the most money, everything, he got brought low. He said to himself, I'm walking on the royal palace where I live. And I said to myself, this great Babylon, which I have built by my power, for the glory of my majesty. And God said, no, until you realize that it's me who puts leaders in place and gives them everything they have and, give, and, and gives them to who he wants to give them to. It all comes from God. We don't pat ourselves on the back. We've got this strange thing in humanity about, you know, that if it's good, I must have deserved it. If it's bad, I didn't, or maybe I deserve that too. But you know what? Sometimes bad things happen. You didn't deserve it necessarily, or you view it as bad, or it seems bad at the time. And when good things happen, they're blessings. Somebody else causes it to you. It doesn't mean you did anything to give it. That's what grace is. All of Christianity is built on that. You know, you don't deserve this. You can't deserve this. You wouldn't have it, even the possibility of being saved from your sins and being forgiven and being reconciled to Almighty God and spend your life in eternity instead of a burning, horrible place without the mercy of God. If it weren't for God's grace, something you don't deserve. Give God the glory. He's the one that makes these things happen. Now, the words of the Bible, they're true. Like I said, this is not a fictional story. It's not an allegory or even a parable like Jesus sometimes mentions, but not often. This is a historical account of a real man, a king, and an actual event and a season. Not just a day, a season that took place in his life. We don't know how long. Seven periods of time. Was it seven weeks? Seven months? Seven years? We don't know. He became proud, and he ascribed all the blessings in his life to himself. And his lesson from God and ours from the Almighty was what? Nineteen words we, too, must never forget. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You might say, I don't have a kingdom. Really? If you're not walking with God, then guess what? You think you're the king of your own life and can do whatever you want. That's your kingdom. You 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 think that your that 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 your 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 world, your dwelling, your attitude, your actions, your autonomy, you know, your independence supposedly are is your kingdom. However big that little bubble is or small, I should say. This all comes from God. All the good things come from God. He is the one that gives you everything you have, including life and breath. But you have to understand that. Don't let yourself get so puffed up and not even get anywhere near what Nebuchadnezzar had to go through before you can learn a lesson so you don't have to take a fall in order to be humbled and realize that you're far less than what you think you are. 
loved, yes, but not to the point where you think you're all that and you don't need God and that he didn't create you and everything you do and you have in life, you got yourself and things like that. No. So this, same, this applies to you too. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, even individual men, and gives it to whom he will. We have democracies and we vote, but ultimately it's the Lord of hosts and his wisdom and his plans and purposes and his sovereignty that tears down and raises up kings and powers, rulers, presidents, prime ministers, whatever you want to call it. And if people in these high positions are like this, how much more us, who are of a more lowly estate in comparison, who also believe we rule our own tiny lives and kingdoms, as I said. This comes to mind as well. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this, talking about the Hebrews, the Jewish people, in the Old Testament, but it says for you, and you're talking about Christians, but also he views all life as people that will hopefully, hopefully come to repentance so that you can be with him forever, which is why he even created you to begin with. So please hear this personally. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're not that yet if you're an unbeliever, but if you're a believer, God sees you like this. So we both have willingness to uh, uh, um, something to pull away from this and take from this. Okay? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Big phrase here. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Is the kingdom of God in eternity all about rules and stuff like that? No. But when you're in your father's house, does he feel loved and honored and respected and when you obey or disobey him? Okay, and your whole life with your father is not about rules, but he's got to set boundaries. He's got to tell you how to live, how not to live, what to do, what not to do, what's good for you, what's bad for you, what he considers all right for you to do in his house or under his rule and under his influence and what's not good for you. Okay, we got to have rules. we got to have statutes. we got to have boundaries, not statues, statutes. Okay, so he, that, so he says, be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today, not the other way around. Now, I like a lot to use this analogy of an anthill as being the earth. In all the hundreds 
or thousands of busy ants milling around just beneath the surface as being mankind. For one thing, we are full of our daily activities, our tasks, our projects, our desires, mindful of only earthly things, right? Right, am I speaking the truth? Okay, rarely, if ever, do we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. That's Colossians 3.1. Secondly, we don't acknowledge or like to think about how small and fleeting our lives are. And how we really aren't in control. And, to the extent that we can be, we're not very good at it, to say the least. When you've seen an anthill, you might have been tempted to destroy it or pour gas on it or stomp on it or even mow right over it or mow through it with a lawnmower. And that's where you see all the ants and how small they are and how earthly-minded they are and how they're milling around all over the place. But usually, usually, something keeps you from doing that. Yet, you're aware that you can. It's something you have the power, the opportunity, and the capability of doing. But you don't. That's called grace. To you, us, it may seem insignificant or momentary or just a split-second thought and choice without much consequence, actually. The ants would never see it coming, even though you did. Their existence would be as quickly and thoroughly wiped out in an instant. But if you spared them, it would be an act of mercy on your part. They didn't do anything to deserve to live or to continue in their existence, which they didn't even have any part in or control over anyway. They were just created by something. I'm just going to say something, even though we know it's the Lord. He creates everything. They were just created by something much more powerful, higher, and beyond them. Something altogether different than they are. Okay, now see yourself as an ant in an anthill, but you're really a small and significant being on a globe in the midst of a huge galaxy with a thousand million hundred trillion stars, and God is the one who could wipe you out in a heartbeat. Okay? But at the same time, I want you to imagine that you have the ability and the power and the opportunity, maybe, or the capability of destroying that anthill, but you don't. That's mercy. That's, that's, that's mercy. That's grace. It's something they don't deserve. We don't deserve. Just like they. Okay? The ants are us. The anthill is earth. Okay? We, in that sense, in that analogy, are God. That's how I want you to see this, if you haven't already. Something altogether different than they are. Something with a total otherness quality about it. It is wholly unlike anyone or anything else. We are those ants, actually. We are clueless brothers and sisters and friends that aren't saved yet. We like to think and act and speak as if we're autonomous and can do everything on our own. We give little or no thought to what is beyond us or who has the authority and the power and the prerogative and the justice to snuff us out. 
We don't acknowledge our maker, our creator. Only when the top of the hill is sliced off by the spinning sharp blade of the mower do we look up and plead for safety or for some other need that we only then acknowledge we can't meet ourselves. Is that not true? But every one of us. See, God's desire and purpose in humbling us or breaking us or tearing us down is not simply for the sake of trial or difficulty, although these things certainly have their spiritually redemptive value. As Romans 8.28 says, Hebrews 12.11 says, James 1.2-4. But they're for us to have our minds illuminated to our rightful size and place in the grand scheme of things. To know him as he truly is, to honor him, to call him Lord as he truly is. If we elevate ourselves and have a wrongful view of ourselves, we can't help but simultaneously lower him in our eyes as a result. See, if God's on high, and he's almighty, and he's huge, and we're tiny, the minute we start to elevate ourselves, it naturally happens that we see God as less than he is. And that's terribly wrong, even dangerous lots of times. But this perspective is not only wrong, as I said, but it's not real. But it can be, and often is, dangerous. In his omnipresence, I means his, his, his being everywhere, and his omniscience is his knowing everything, and his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, he could simply squash us. Especially in his holy wrath and do justice for all of our arrogance and our betrayal and our rebellion. But that's not his goal or his purpose. Listen to what he did to King Nebuchadnezzar after he was humbled and after he came to a right understanding of his place in the human-to-creator relationship and to his true place in the world. In Daniel 4, verses 34 through 37, the king declares the truth to all who will listen and take heed. He says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to him, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay or thwart or hold off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and splendor returned to me. He was merciful. My counselors and my lord sought me again, and I was established again in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, insert your name, praise and extol and elevate and exalt and lift up and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble.
Do you see here and pay attention to the phrases, my reason returned to me, which means it left to begin with, which means he wasn't thinking correctly, which is associated with pride. Then he says, I blessed the Most High instead of not caring about him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. In other words, mine is nothing in comparison. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, always. Mine is nothing, it's small, and it's fleeting. It's finite. He does according to his will, not mine. And we're to live according to his will, not ours. And it's, another one says, at the same time, my reason returned to me, again. And he says, I praise and extol and honor not this king of my own life, of my own kingdom, but the king of heaven. All his works, not some of them, all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. These words are a true testimony from an earthly king. His territory was vast, larger than any on earth at the time, and maybe even since, since the world was not so developed back then. We would, earthly speaking, be his subjects. And if he could speak out of experience and in his life of the power and the majesty and the sovereignty and the authority and the mercy of Creator God, how much more should we? He's over us, and he has much more than we do. He's got much more to show for it. He's got much more power, influence, money, everything else. And if he gets humbled and he can say those things about God, how much more should we, who are only his subjects, who are below him in comparison? See, God is the giver and the sustainer and the taker of life. We wake up every morning because he wills it, not because of us. We have breath in our lungs because he wills it, not because we can make that happen. And these things continue from second to second, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, not because of our power, but because of his. How gracious and merciful he is to us. Imagine the ants rebelling against or refusing to acknowledge you when you have the power to so easily crush not just each one, but every single one of them and the whole anthill along with them. That's what we do each day when we don't acknowledge our puniness and our sinfulness and our rightful place in the created order and relationally. Jehovah is to be our God, and we are to be his people. Everything we say and do, all our choices have wages. What is that? That's outcomes, or consequences, or rewards, or effects. Romans 6.23 says, simply and bluntly, but wonderfully also, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can't continue in sin and 
have eternal life. They are opposed and contradictory to each other. We've got to turn from our pride and our sin and acknowledge it and confess it and commit our lives to forsaking sin in our own ways and ask genuinely for forgiveness. See, guys, He is the shepherd. We're simply the sheep. We are to hear and listen and to obey His voice only. No one else is not even our own and follow Him only. He is the way, the Bible says, and the truth and the life. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven except by and through Him. He and the Father are one, the same. He took our sins upon himself and offers us his righteousness so that we might be reconciled to the Father. He and the Father are one. His name, Jesus Christ, is above all other names. To him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Some willingly and gladly and many unwillingly yet truthfully with fists of rebellion in the air. What are you living for and what will your wages be? Your choices have outcomes, effects, consequences, rewards. What are they going to be? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord through the Father. The Bible says, guys, that now, now is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You know that. We like to think about it all the time, but it's, we're not. Okay. You do the work yourself, thinking you're going to find your own way to heaven if you even care about that. And what is your... What do you do? You sin and your wages are death. You die. But if you turn from sin and accept humbly and truly and gratefully and committedly the work he has done on the cross on your behalf for you, then you live. Then your wages are life. Today is the day. Remember the words of Isaiah 66.1 to show you the true and the right perspective. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Like you on the sidewalk or on the grass, and the ant underneath or on the anthill. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and the earth where you are is just my footstool where I put my feet. That's the proper perspective, and that's the only way, like King Nebuchadnezzar, that we're going to avoid eternal death, and we're going to have a chance at eternal life. And that is extremely important, especially with all the things you see going around you this day and age. Please ponder your place in the world. Yes, God loves you. That's why he saves you. God himself died to save you. In light of all that we just heard, and you're feeling puny because you know you are, whether you like to admit it or not, whether you like to dwell on it or think about it or not, you know you're puny on the earth, in your city, in the universe, in the grand scheme of things, in comparison to God, relationally and in the created order. But if he was willing to come to the earth 
and subject himself on purpose, willingly, in order to save you from your sins, so that you could be made right and and cleansed and cleansed and and have eternal life, which is why he made you to begin with. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. Remember, God is like God is in heaven. That's his throne. That's where he sits. And we on this planet, and we're a small speck on this planet, it's his footstool. That's the way we've got to see it. If we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. God bless you.